We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Take a look here at Mark chapter 12. I've tried to carry that on in his life that his mother has left for me to keep him humble. Okay. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 and following. When I was uh, in high school, we had a drill in football. We didn't have it in college because it was probably too dangerous. But what you'd do is you would, the coach would assemble a circle of ball players, and you'd put one guy in the middle. And uh, the coach would walk around the perimeter of the circle, and he would point to somebody. And their job was to break where they were and to run over you. And you had to set up and stop them. One of y'all was going to win. And he would just go around the circle, and you didn't know where it was going to come from. He would just point. And the name of the drill was called Bull in the Ring. Uh, I think it got uh, uh, snowflakeified uh, after, and they wouldn't let it happen after a while. But every time I read about this section of, on the, uh, the passion of Christ, of the priests that came to him, Herodians came to him, Pharisees came to him, Sadducees came to him. Next week, a scribe, a scholar is going to come to him. It's bull in the ring. Because all of these five guys, uh, priests, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, uh, scribes, they make up the uh, ruling caste clientele of Israel. He's taken them on one at a time. Each of them has a challenge. Each of them has a question. All the questions are different, but all of the questions reflect uh, a particular departure from the faith that those sects did. And they want to ask him, am I wrong? Tell me where. And they challenge him. And each of the an answers has massive implications. If you did nothing but take these five challenges, uh, it's a complete theological, philosophic, moral education, if that's all you have. Number one, by whose authority do you do these things? We're priests. Nothing's above us but God. Who gives you the authority to shut down temple worship and to drive out our animals? And Jesus' response was, uh, what'd you do with John the Baptist, the last of the prophets? My authority is the Bible. That's it. I am self-substantiating. My authority is the Bible. That is what is true. Would you say that is an important belief system? How do I know what is true? God said it. Well, I figure you don't figure nothing. God tells you what is true about him, about you, evil, redemption. God is true. And so, what did you do with John the Baptist? We're not going to say, well, I'm not going to tell you. If you will not honor the Bible, I'm not going to tell you who the chief object of the Bible is. You're going to bow your knee to the self-evident Word of God. And then secondly, uh, the tax to Caesar. Do we pay it or do we not? Pharisees said, you don't. Herodians said, you do. Herodians, you go along with the government. Pharisees, you stay apart from the government. Well, Jesus said, 
pay your taxes. Keep your name off the police blotter. You render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he didn't finish. You render to God what is God's. He's the heavenly king. We bear his inscription on our very soul. It is self-evident. Remember our Constitution? We find these truths to be self-evident. Nobody has to argue them. We know it. And so, you give to God what belongs to God, and that is your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Lord our God is one. You'll love him with all that you have because that's what they were deficient of. And now we're going to have a Sadducee. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. Mel used to always teach this right here, and he would say, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> okay. He's 95. All right. That's... But it's true. that They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so if a man dies, wife marries seven of them in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Thought being that life after death is just like life before death. And if you can't figure it out, then it can't be true. And so Jesus dealt with all of them because when you think about it, that's the key of life. What, how do we know truth? The Bible. Uh, what are we called to do? You be honest and above board with government and you fear your heavenly king and you walk before him. Amen? There's a graduation message right there. Believe the Bible and obey it at all places. And then lastly, when I do die and leave life down here, what is beyond this pale? In the resurrection. So we dealt with authority, life down here, life up there. Life down here, life up there. How do you get there? Christ in the Bible. There it is. There's your graduation message. Take that and you're ready to go in life. Know the Bible, read the Bible, obey the Bible, and when you die, be trusting the Bible when you go beyond this. There it is. All done. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, now that we know everything, I'm just kidding. Chapter 12. Here come the Sadducees, verse 18. And Mark wants you to know, as a Roman reading this, they don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees occupied the aristocracy of Israel. Like the, I'm sorry, did I say Pharisees? Sadducees. The Sadducees were the aristocracy of Israel. Like the Pharisees, they evolved in the intertestamental period where Israel that was dispersed had to keep their national identity. The Pharisees said, come away from all of the pagans into the synagogue and let's cross all the T's and dot all the I's. You keep not simply the law, but the traditions about the law, the Mishnah. And so they were synagogical lawyers. You, you have to keep these rules. Okay. They started off very good. They got very bad. The Sadducees were not focused on the synagogue. They were focused on the temple that had been rebuilt in the time of the Persians. And by the time of the Greeks and the Romans, you had a temple in Jerusalem. And so they focused not simply on the oral law, but on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that, was, that were the rules about the, the ceremonial tradition in the temple, the feast, and the sacrifices. So they were focused on the temple. 
um, their belief was that there was nothing beyond Deuteronomy. Joshua and following to the prophets, they didn't believe it. They only believed what had to do with Moses and Aaron and the temple. Uh, the Pharisees felt they were loyal by keeping the law. The Sadducees, they were loyal by keeping the, the cultic worship, the rules of worship of Israel. Um, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't even believe in life after death. Isn't that amazing? Some say they believed in a Sheol, a place of the dead, but they did not believe in a heavenly presence. You did not go to heaven. They didn't believe in rewards or punishments that you just died. Uh, and the reason was they couldn't find anything in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy that dealt with the resurrection. The Pharisees were the fight and fundies of the day. They departed from the Bible by canonizing what wasn't there. They not only believed the Bible, they believed what tradition said about the Bible. They, they were much like the Catholics of our day. Don't email me. Okay. But they believed in more than the Bible. They added to it. The Sadducees took away from it. We don't believe Joshua and all the rest. Only the temple complex. And so, they're going to bring this question. What about the resurrection? Each one of these people, priests, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, they all bring their quirk. They all bring their oddity. And they want Christ to pronounce his blessing on it or to challenge them and debate with them. Their own quirk. The priest, there's nothing above us. By whose authority do you do this? Herodians, you should be loyal to Rome. Pharisees, you should not be loyal to Rome. Should we pay tax to Caesar or not? That was their quirk. Let's argue. The Sadducees, we don't believe in the resurrection. And then they gave the, what about the heathen in Africa question? Okay. If a guy had seven wives and he dies, who does he get? All right. If Columbo had been there, he would investigate that wife. All right. As to why seven guys died right after supper. All right. And so, are you with me? Each sect has a weirdness. I have discovered in my time as a Christian that it's the same with, within Christendom. That you'll have some guys that will hold it's the King James only. Y'all ever met one of them? You know, you're going to hell and I'm glad, kind of a guy. <laughs> or somebody that uh, uh, believes in the Apocrypha, the intertestamental books. Or somebody that thinks the church's authority goes back to Rome and Peter, and they're Catholic, and they want to talk about apostolic succession. Uh, or priests can forgive sins. Or somebody that, oh, help me out. They don't believe in... There's some guy on Denton Square believes in a flat earth. Have y'all seen that pickup? Yeah. And he'll want to talk about flat earth. Okay. Or uh, some guy's a hyper-Calvinist, and uh, he's going to get around to limited atonement. Some guy is going to get to amillennialism. Okay. Some guy is a uh, Puritan-minded guy, and he's always going to get around to post-millennialism. All right. And whenever they meet me, a, a Dallas Seminary graduate that's a pastor. No, I don't care if we're talking about the Cowboys or Andy Griffith. 
they're going to get around to, yeah, that King James Bible is the only one, wouldn't you agree? We're going to get around to that. Their hobby, they're going to ride their hobby. And that's what they do with Christ. You tell me, Jesus, we believe this. Do you? All right, so we're going to go at it again. What Christ is going to address is uh, their assumptions. Their assumption is the law, first five books, don't say anything about the resurrection. Secondly, that heaven has to resemble earth. If we have marriage down here, then we have to have marriage up there. They don't even ask that question. They just assume it. So Christ is not going to answer simply their question. He's going to back up to their assumptions. Always be careful about debating a divine human because they won't just go with what you say. They will go with what you think way down deep. And so, verse 19 and following, they tell the story. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which they don't believe, which one's wife will she be? All seven had married her. They don't argue as to whether there's marriage in heaven. They just assume it, okay? In verse 24, Jesus says, is this not the reason you are mistaken? You don't understand the scriptures? That was their first problem. It's not in Genesis to Deuteronomy. Is it not really? Is that what you think? Well, I'm going to quote to you from Exodus 3, and we'll look at it. Never argue a guy that's called the Word of God. Uh, and then he's going to address in verse 24, and you don't understand the power of God. The reason you don't believe in a resurrection is you don't understand how you could have marriage in heaven because you don't understand the infinite power of God to raise men from the dead and make them like angels and that they are not marriageable because they're in the presence of God. Why do we have marriage? It's not good for man to live alone. In heaven, that phrase never gets mentioned. It's not good. It never gets mentioned. And so everything is perfect. And so number one, we're going to deal with your thoughts that there can't be a resurrection because you can't figure how life would fit in to resurrection. I remember one time, because what Christ is going to say is that there's not any marriage in heaven. One time I was teaching this way over at the Summerall Center, and I, I taught about how there is no marriage in heaven, because marriage is good to cure aloneness, and in heaven you are not alone, that I would be excess baggage to Teresa, okay? I've got God, but I need Tommy, <laughs> okay? That ain't going to happen. Thank you, God, that he's dead, okay? And so... I'm teaching this in church that God is our sufficiency. We don't need anything. In his presence is fullness of joy and in his, at his right hand are pleasures forever. And I finished and there was a girl in the uh, kitchen over in the Summerall Center and she was just weeping <laughs> going on. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, I won't have Bill. I mean, I got God. 
in Jesus, but I need Bill. And I said, hey, you won't need marriage in heaven because it's beyond anything you can imagine. About eight months later, she left Bill, <laughs> you know. Just, I mean, hooked him big time. It ain't funny, but... Because uh, there's a lot of women, you know, you could say, you know, in heaven, you'll be married to this man forever. No! <laughs> I thought we were talking about heaven! I'm thinking Dante's Inferno, it's your mate that's in the ninth... <laughs> I'm, don't email me. Okay. And so he said, let's, let's deal first. He says in 25, they're like angels in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. There are no needs. That's why. You can never say it's not good. I'll make a help. There, you don't need help. You don't need anything in heaven. You have the fullness of God. As a matter of fact, uh, Philippians 3.20, listen to this. We're waiting for our Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humiliation. Look around. Would you want that body next to you in heaven? He will transform the body of our humiliation into conformity with the body of his glory by the power that he has to subdue all things unto himself. How many knees will bow? How many tongues will confess? Will there be the present universe existent in the eternal state? Yes or no? Be careful. I don't want to throw you out of church. Logan Nyquist, will the present universe exist in eternity? No. no. You willing to die on that hill? Your job is right on the bubble. Right here. Logan's exactly right. He, <laughs> Logan Nyquist here, ladies and gentlemen. God will make new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The eternal state is in the mind of God. You've never seen it. No one's ever seen it. It's like a, uh, a, bride, a bridegroom's bestowance upon his dear wife when he carries her across the threshold. Look at this. I brought my wife into a duplex, okay? Which is, oh, don't email me, okay? But he's not just going to bring us into a, I mean, he's going to bring us into a place where you don't have a sun that shines because God himself is the sun and you're in the core of light. Imagine that. In a city that is set in stone and pure glass and on and on. And so, and in a universe, what's it going to look like? What, is there going to be a, a new moon? We don't know. Is there going to be new planets? Is there going to be a Milky Way? It's all up to the creativity of God to bestow upon you the center uh, next to him through all eternity. As a matter of fact, you shall judge angels. You'll be above them. You'll be in a higher position. And so, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with Christ. Beloved, it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, 1 John, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. And our salvation that has been positional, now it's progressive, then will be final and we will be like him. 
There will be no penalty of sin, no power of sin, no presence of sin, no vacuum for uh, anything to fill but God. Isn't that amazing? Now we look in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now we know partially, then we'll know fully as we are fully known. We will have a complete, uninhibited knowledge of God with nothing to misinterpret, and we will learn forever. Uh, the Bible says, here's a verse for you. In that day, God will be all in all. It says Christ will deliver up the kingdom. There will no longer be approaching God through the mediatorial work of Christ. We shall be rise. We will be in his presence. And God will be all in all. There will be no place anywhere that God is not worshiped and his majesty is not resplendent and we behold him. Don't try to imagine it because you can't. He will be all in all. He put all things in subjection under his feet. The first of a new universe is you. The first of a universe that he puts all things in subjection under his feet is you and I will be raised from the dead and then he will raise the universe. So we are the anticipation of a new universe coming. What does that do for your self-image? And so, Paul says, or the, David, at his right hand are pleasures forever and his presence is fullness of joy. Revelation 22, a something that is never mentioned. We shall behold his face. You remember Moses said, I want to see your glory. God said, no, you don't because you'll be a bug zapper. I forget what the Hebrew is, but you will get bug zapped. I'll put you in a rock. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll pass by and you'll see me in passing. You'll see what, who I was and what I've done. You're going to have to wait for the face of God. Uh, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ or the gospel of God in the face of Christ. When we looked to him, we saw God by faith. Isn't that amazing? And so, there are, we're like angels. There is no procreation. There is no marriage. But you will not be alone. The bridegroom will be with the bride, and we will behold him face to face. That's amazing. And so, don't try to fit heaven. I, I mentioned that Revelation 22. Don't try to fit earth into heaven. Uh, we shall behold his face. What does that mean? You remember the ironic blessing in number six? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and lift up the light of his countenance and be pleased upon you forever. You and I will be in the eternal benevolence and blessedness of the face of God. It's kind of hard to preach on this because you run out of words. You run out of illustrations. You run out of concepts. You just have to take it by faith. You will be like angels. And so, number one, is there marriage in heaven? No. Question how would Jesus know a 33-year-old Galilean carpenter? Because Colossians 1.16 says, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, because he's the begotten Son of God, of all creation. He was there prior. For in him, all things are created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is the source, the means, and the object of every molecule in existence. So how does Jesus know what the resurrection is like? He is the one that brings it about and he is the one that created the angelic realm. He knows what glorified bodies are like. Are you with me? It's quite an answer. Number two, well, how about the fact that the scriptures don't say there is a resurrection? Really, is that what you think? In verse 26, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? The Sadducees prided themselves on the book of Moses, the first five books. Uh, Jesus says, haven't you read? He's treating them like Ned in the first reader. Haven't you read that in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him? Where is the passage of the burning bush? It's in Exodus chapter 3 that is part of the law that the Sadducees didn't believe God told about the resurrection. So Christ goes to the law and says, let me tell you about the resurrection. Here it is. He says, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God was talking to Moses in approximately 1400 B.C. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in 2000 B.C. So those guys have been dead for 400 years. Their bodies are moldering in the grave. And yet God says to Moses, I am. Present tense. I am the God of these men. Jesus says, God is not the God of a corpse. He is the God of the living. So if there were no resurrection, what would God have to have said? I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can Jesus Christ build the doctrine of the resurrection upon a verb tense in one word? That is what is called verbal plenary inspiration. Plenary means fullness. It's not just true in spiritual ideas, but in science, history, anything that it talks about, it's true. You don't have to doubt it. Verbal means it's not simply the ideas he inspires and the words might be wrong. But no, it's the, uh, which are two liberal views of inerrancy. But it is the plenary, I'm sorry, the verbal, the very words are inspired. So Jesus builds his doctrine on a verb tense. That's when you can handle the Bible. Uh, I am the God. How did Jesus know this? Let me show you something. Look at Exodus chapter 3 for just a moment. Here is the text he's talking about. And it says in verse 1, he comes to Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of God. 
And in verse 2, somebody appears to him. You see that? Who's the one that appears to Moses? The angel of the Lord. Now, let me stop just a second. Not an angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord first appears in Genesis 15 when he appears to uh, Hagar in the wilderness. He continually appears throughout the Old Testament. Appeared to Gideon. Appeared to uh, uh, Jacob. Appears to Moses. He speaks from heaven when Moses is going to sacrifice Isaac. And virtually every single time the angel of the Lord is mentioned, the angel ascribes to himself deity. Gideon sees him and says, I must die. I have seen the angel of the Lord. Uh, Jacob says, I'm still alive after seeing him face to face. So they named it the face of God, Peniel. I saw the angel of the Lord. He uh, first appears in Genesis 15. The last time he appears is in Zechariah chapter 12. That's the very end, almost Malachi is the end. Next to the end is Zechariah. He never appears in the New Testament. Never. Doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. Who is the angel of the Lord? Don't speak yet. He refers to himself as God. He disappears after the birth of Jesus, because we no longer need an appearance of God, a theophany. We now have an incarnation of God. Again, I turn to Logan Nyquist. <laughs> Logan, what is greater? A theophany, a momentary appearance of God. He appears as a man and then goes away. Or an incarnation, which is greater? The latter, an incarnation. Would you say, Logan, knowing we're on tape <laughs> and we're live streaming, <laughs> all right, if there is an incarnation of God into humanity, I mean coming into us as a zygote, as a fetus, as a baby, all the way to humanity and rising physically from the dead and physically ascending to heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. If we now have an incarnation, Logan, do we need a theophany? No. So you're saying to me that once the incarnation appears, the angel of the Lord morphs into the Word made flesh. You would say that knowing that I'm your employer. <laughs> that would be a wise man. Are y'all with me and Logan? Yeah. So who is this angel of the Lord? It is the pre-incarnate revealing of the Word of God. And he says, lost my place, sometimes in my brilliance, I will simply become sidetracked by listening to myself. Okay. Yeah. In Exodus 3, once again, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. Sound like the cross, doesn't it? Appearing in the midst of a thorn bush, Stephen calls it, that is burning, but it is not dead. What does a thorn bush represent? The curse. It's burning, judgment. 
but it doesn't die. Life from the dead, from the Son of God, speaks. Does that sound familiar? That's what it is right there. It's an instrument of death where judgment falls on a divine being who rises from the dead. So this is an in miniature of the atonement. See why Jesus said, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he spoke to them the things concerning him and all the scriptures. And so the bush was not consumed. Verse 3, Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. God shows us the cross and we say, I must. I must. It's called efficacious grace. I must look into this. Why the bush is not burned up. How he could die and still rise. And when the Lord saw he had turned, God called to him. He turns our head and then he speaks. And we say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Moses, Moses, here I am. That's incidentally how you got saved. God said, Steve, Steve, here I am. Because the cross took your eyes and you turned to truth. And now truth speaks. You're on the right track, Steve. We're going to make you right here. He said to him, here I am. But you'll notice in verse 4. When who saw that he turned? What's it say? The Lord saw. Who was speaking? Verse 2. The angel of the Lord. Who does Moses say? Because he wrote Genesis. That the angel was. The Lord saw. God spoke to him. In verse 5. He said, don't come near Remove your sandals. You're standing too high. Verse 6, I am the God of your father. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is the angel of the Lord? It is Jesus. You know what? In the book of Acts, Stephen, as he is dying, recites Jewish history and looks to this text. And he said, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a burning bush and God said. Stephen said, this is God. Question, how did Jesus know that they're like angels? Because he made them. How does Jesus know that uh, the Lord said, I am the God of the living, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive? How did he know? Because he said it. He's quoting himself. You've got to do something with Christ here. Let me ask you, can you merely say about Jesus, he is a good man? Do good men say they are deities? Would you let someone babysit for you that said, I'm God? That'd make you nervous. And that's what Christ says, I am God. I either have to worship him or call him the most abominable liar, or I have to lock him up as a lunatic. But I can't call him a good guy. You've got to worship or you've got to run. One of the two. So Stephen says, this is the Lord. I am the God. They're alive. If you die and I do your funeral, I'm going to speak about you as though you are in glory. Do I have the authority to say that? Yes, I do. 
Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Moses said, when we die, we fly away. That's where we get our song from. Paul said, uh, my heart's desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is much better. The word depart in uh, Greek means the word analusis. We get the word analytical. Luo means to loose, ana to loose away. It's a word used for a soldier breaking camp and going home. It's a word used for taking off a backpack, a burden, and laying it down. Gonna lay down my burden, all right? You lay it down. It's a word used for a ship being untied from its moorings and going out to sea and disappearing. We get the word analytical, where things spread out, where they're moved around. And so that is what Paul called death. It's going home. It's breaking camp. Whenever you untie a ship and it goes out to sea, you wave goodbye until it disappears over the horizon. And on the other side, somebody says, welcome home. And so when you die, Logan, I'll say, Logan is gone, but he's home. Hang on, and we'll see him in just a little bit. So if you die right now and go to glory, Debbie Habern, will you see your parents? Yes, you will. They'll be there. In a, is it a resurrection body? No. It's a corporeal state. It merely says in the book of Revelation, the resurrection of the church doesn't occur until the rapture. And you see people die in Revelation uh, in the tribulation period. And it simply says that a robe is given to them and they're told to wait a little while longer. Christ returns and the tribulation saints that died, their bodies are raised then. We're the first. And so if you die now, you will be in some kind of corporeal state. It simply says in fine linen, you will be in the presence of God in glory. When will your body come together? At the rapture. When the dead in Christ shall rise first, because they've got six more feet to go. <laughs> then we who are alive shall be plucked. Harpazzo, plucked. We shall be plucked together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall all be together with the Lord. Y'all believe that? That's kind of supernatural right there. No matter how far you've gone, there's an hotel about in Massachusetts, the governor, Governor uh, Winthrop had died and they had buried him. And years later, they went to exhume his body and to place it in a more worthy place, the governor of Massachusetts, the Puritan. And uh, they went down to find his body and an apple tree had grown up over his grave. An apple tree puts down roots, right? What do roots do? They take in nutrients. What's the greatest nutrient in the world? What's the best fertilizer? A dead body. Are you with me? And so the apple tree had consumed the governor of Massachusetts. Now, when you're an apple tree and you consume a dead body, what do the nutrients do? They make apples. And the people of Massachusetts pick them 
and slice them up and make preserves and eat them on their toast. So, if you're God, can you raise from the dead John Winthrop? No. So let's go on here. <laughs> yes, you can. As a matter of fact, Revelation says, even the sea gives up its dead at the resurrection. Wouldn't you think that if you died at sea and became kelp, eaten by an anemone that's eaten by, that's eaten by, that's eaten by a tuna that you could get out of the resurrection. No, you can't hide even there. God knows where you are. You heard it here. Okay. And so what does this text teach? This text teaches the most amazing thing what is the proof we have of Jesus Christ that he has come? Who gives him the authority? The Bible. Amen? Do y'all believe that? I believe that. I don't believe that human beings finite on their own can find infinite truth. The infinite must speak to the finite. And I think he did. I know he did. And it's self-evident. Nobody can say these things but God. It's what the guys said that went to arrest Christ. Where is he? No man spake as this man spake. I'm not about to touch him. You go arrest him. No man spake as this man. He is absolutely unique. Nobody has said this stuff. And so that's our authority. Let's begin right there. Secondly, what is my moral duty? Keep the law of the land. Amen, Logan. Keep the law of the land. Debbie, is that right? Are you on a police blotter? I just wondered. Okay. Keep the, you went to Texas, Steve. Isn't that correct? Did you go nude bathing at Travis uh, Lake out there? Okay. So, keep the law of the land. But God made you, and we bear his image, and we are to live our lives in obedience to the revealed word of God. Amen. There it is. And when you die, you're going home, most assuredly. And this body will live again. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see God, and I will take my stand upon the earth. Job. And so, belief, life, eternity. There it is. We've got it. You know, if you were reading your Bible for the first time, if you were Spock, okay, you're the absolute rational Vulcan, okay? And you're reading your Bible, you would say, Captain, something very interesting. What's that, Spock? There are th gardens in this book, and it all revolves around gardens. Captain Kirk says, what do you mean? Genesis 1 and 2, there's a garden of Eden, of delight, and you have man that is untainted, enjoying God. Yeah. And then in Revelation, the last book, the last chapter, chapter 22, the last chronological paragraph, you are in the eternal state, new heavens and a new earth, and it's a garden. And there is the river coming down from the presence of God, giving the, the tree of life all throughout the holy city and a golden street 
of holiness that goes to his presence. And this reborn, resurrected universe and the people of God are in the garden. No longer just two people immortal in Eden. They are glorified like unto the Son of God. And they're eating and drinking, not two of them, but an innumerable host. Not with a choice, the tree of life, the tree of death. There's nothing but the tree of life. There was a serpent here. There's a serpent gone over here. So where would you rather be, the Garden of Eden or the eternal state? Give me the eternal state. So the Bible is between two gardens, but there's a third garden, and it's right in the middle. And it's not a pretty sight. It's dark. It's called the Garden of the Olive Crush. Y'all know how you pronounce it in Aramaic? Gethsemane. And here you see not sinner sinners. Here you see God as a man. And he's not rejoicing. He's weeping. And he's not eating. He's already eaten and said, this is my body broken. This is my blood poured out. And he is betrayed. And he is beaten. And he is tortured. And he is nailed to a cross. And everybody runs. Judas betrays him. Peter renounces him. Saul of Tarsus wants his people dead. Everybody leaves him. The Romans, the Jews, he is whipped and stripped and he is hung on high. And he is all by himself. God was with them. God is with them. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is alone. Light, eternal light, darkness, pain. And the only way you can get from here to here is you go through that garden. And you have to take that man in your darkness and in your error and in your sin. And by the grace of God, you have to look full into him and admit that he is true and you are not that he is the very word of God. And when you do that, which man will not do unless God acts upon his heart, you, you bend man back in place. And he now believes rightly for the first time in his life. And he has a freed will and he is regenerated to begin progressively obeying God and looking like him. Are you with me? That's the beauty of the cross. No human could have done that. You dig? The three, only Spock and God could do that. No human could arrange a document like this over 1,500 years, 40 authors, many not knowing of who wrote around them, and they all come together perfectly in a singular document. And the doctrine never changes. And the doctrine we're going to speak on are the most controversial questions of life that nobody can agree on. And they're going to be spot on, every one of them. It is self-evident. Let's remember the Lord. Father in heaven, for just a few moments, we will celebrate communion of what the Word did. 
The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God that is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has laid him bare. And so I thank you, God, that in a world gone mad and always has been mad, that you have given us an anchor of the soul steadfast and sure, not through a formula of religion, not through a set of rules, but of an event of the infinite person, God, and the most greatest of all miracles, becoming a baby and a man, and the greatest of all acts of of, uh, altruism, living what we could not live, the greatest act of sacrifice, dying at the hands of his creation, the greatest victory rising from the dead and the greatest gift, eternal life for the lowest of prices. Ho, everyone who thirsts, let him come and drink of the water of life without cost. Amazing. As the songwriter said, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How wonderful, how marvelous, and my song shall ever be. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me.